But now we don't have any value. Folks, uh, it's your death sentence for this week. Uh, it's me, it's Langdon. We got uh, Matt Calhoun um, back from uh, a long absence. Friend of the pod, author of Egress, and oh fuck, I've totally forgotten your other book. Um, I edited Mark Fisher's final lectures, Post Capitalist Desire. Because it doesn't really feel yes. like my book. Uh, it's a Mark Fisher book, but okay, that, that'll do. But <laughs> yes, you are you are still indisputably the author of the book Egress, though, which was very good. Yeah, um, Post Capitalist Desire was very good. Your blog, xenogothic.com, also very good. Um, and we are all congratulating you for winning a PhD at the University of Newcastle, uh, and which you're going to be doing something on Deleuze, apparently, which is why we're talking about Deleuze for a bit there. Yeah. And but today we're here to talk about something much more complicated. I like the idea of winning a PhD like in a competition, like yeah. I assume it was like <laughs> it a feel like that. It was quite Squid nice. Game well, scenario. I mean, awful at first, but yeah, then you yeah, <laughs> Squid Game sure. It's academia, but a Squid Game persevering or whatever. You have to do the thing where you walk across the glass platforms and some of them break. It's like if you get to the end, if you get to the end, you get a piece of paper that says you know a lot about books. <laughs> it's not inverted. It's not glass floors. It's just glass ceilings. Like, yeah, there's some. There's there. I'll get deep with that. <laughs> but luckily, we're here to talk about video games. Uh, unluckily, <laughs> we're here to talk about the most complex and literary of all video games of all time, the uh, Hide Hidetaka Miyazaki. Uh, his oeuvre, his saga, where he, for about fifteen years now, has been making the same game over and over, and they've all been brilliant. Um, we're talking. I I've never played Demon Souls, so let's leave that one out. But the Death, uh, the Dark Souls trilogy. Uh, Sekiro, and uh, now Elden Ring. Wait, how have you not played Demon Souls when it just got like remastered on the PlayStation Five? Yeah, you don't have That's one. Um, <laughs> maybe you can fuck off. No, I don't have a. Did you know 5. that they're as big as toddlers? Like, they're huge. <laughs> the PS Five is fucking huge. Every day I walk out and look at it and I jump a little bit because it looks like there's a little man crouching on the entertainment center. Yeah, I can't deal with that. <laughs> it's... I also uh, don't have yeah. a PS5, but I did watch someone play through the remaster of Demon's Souls like a few months ago, and it does look pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I, I've one seen day. someone play through it, yeah. I, I've wasted like 18 hours of my life watching uh, someone on YouTube uh, play through Demon's Souls just so I can say that I have... I'd rarely seen Demon Souls and absorbed its lore. Something I uh, find really fascinating about um what is it, FromSoft is that I only really learned recently. So like the Otogi games are some of the best like action beat 'em up RPGs that I've like ever played. Like it's stupidly good. Didn't know that like apparently that was uh both from FromSoft and also something that uh, Miyazaki had some relation to. Did you know they're the people behind Armored Core? Like the yeah. big robot? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, um, the uh, recurring character patches 
first appeared in a Armored Core game. Also, like, they made Eternal Ring, which was a game I was obsessed with when the PS2 first came out. And they're the Kingsfield people, which I... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Kingsfield is like the granddaddy of the whole thing. That was kind of where it started. That was before Miyazaki joined. Though, yeah. But it was, um, yeah, with the, without that, no Demon Souls. Without Demon Souls, Miyazaki wouldn't have got involved and he wouldn't have, like, turned this weird little deep little project that they were putting out into, like, a cult game. Then he wouldn't have come out with Dark Souls, which was a cult game that blew up and became huge. And that wouldn't have got us to this point where he can like pull up George R. R. Martin and say like, "Hey, buddy, you want to re- co-write the biggest game of all time with me?" Um, they also apparently put out. Uh, they were the ones behind uh, Steel Battalion, the uh, mm-hmm. the game with the huge ass controller, uh, yeah, like one hundred eighty dollars. I love the concept of that. Uh, it's meant to be a terrible uh, game. But um, our game I, I just is built around the idea that it's too expensive. <laughs> That's yeah. the game is trying to afford the game. <laughs> when you buy it, it's basically beaten. Sounds very from software almost. That's a that's a yeah. striking magnet. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the, the like most basic uh, analysis of the Souls games is that they're all about um, well, the most basic one is they're all about depression, which is a stupid, stupid idea. But the most above that basic is that it's about struggling and persistence and keeping going and having some stick to And it kind of is, but yeah, it, 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 they're all about a lot more than that. They're about really so much stuff that it's kind of pointless to say what they're about. Because they, they, got... they do the 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 attraction for someone like George R. R. Martin makes perfect sense because especially um it was a bit more uh sublimated in Demon Souls and Dark Souls One. Um I say a bit, not not a huge amount, but once you get to like Dark Souls two and forward and Bloodborne, and now especially with Elden Ring, they kind of they're a lot more um, explicative with their thematic stuff, and it's mm. a lot more uh, contradictive in that like fertile literary way, rather than the like annoying like if it was an essay, where it's more about like self overturning, and then you just sort of get left with like, wait, am I happy that I'm a squid man now? I am held by a nice lady, so I guess that's mm. pretty good. <laughs> like, <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be held by a nice lady? <laughs> you think that's uh, the, that's my favorite thing about them, though? Like that whole. I mean, I guess to put my cards on the table. I think I've played. I think I played all of the all the Dark Souls and all of, I've, and I've played Bloodborne and Sekiro. Um, but the first Dark Souls is the only one that I've completed. I think which I didn't lock hmm. down. Then yeah. I kind of. I mean, that's not, that's probably, it feels like it's a, it be a sort of mark of shame, but actually, I don't know if you can ever really complete them. I feel like that's what I, no, I found I... really striking about like the first, like compl- completing with heavy quotation marks. Hmm, um, yeah. Just really struck yeah, by is... getting to the end of that game and you just immediately go back to the start. Like, there's no hmm. sort of, you're immediately just put back where you started. And I find that 
don't know. Maybe there's there's that to unpack, maybe. But um, yeah, I mean, something the, new, I think like uh, you can see on I think PlayStation and uh, on Steam how many people actually completed the game, and it's very few. And that's not simply because they're hard, and they are hard, and some people will quit just because of that. It's it is kind of you get to a point where you've. And I get to this point in Dark Souls 1, 2, and Sekiro where I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. Not because it's, it's uh, worn itself out or anything. It's just because I've seen all I can see and anything else I do at this point is just going to be completionist-ism. It's just going to be me fighting another boss just to say I, I have. And I avoid them largely because I have that brain disease. Uh, I... <laughs> I famously uh, avoided buying Elden Ring in order to get the New Horizon game, which was good, but I believe to be worse than Elden Ring. And then immediately followed that with the newest Lego game, uh, which I did get that clean-ass hundo on. Completed the fuck out of it. Did I enjoy it? It, it, I'm going to avoid answering that. Would I have enjoyed Elden Ring more? I've watched videos. I almost certainly would. And then last night, I'm going to link you guys to it. I bought a beautiful game called uh, a Waifu Impact. Um, okay. <laughs> which, wa- waifu Impact. I click on this link. <laughs> no, it's, it's, just, it's just a Google search. Waifu Impact is a bikini water gun open world <laughs> third person shooter game. <laughs> So, so oh, it is like wow. Elden Ring in a way. It's, I'm, um, I'm not kidding. I did purchase this. This is. I had, uh, yeah. I had some this friends over. I was telling them like, "Yeah, I'm going to be recording something about the uh, about the FromSoft stuff," and they're like, "You still don't have Elden Ring?" And I went, "Hey, shut up!" <laughs> then I, then I uh, bought Waifu Impact. In my defense, it's... Waifu Impact was four dollars. <laughs> Fortnite. Uh, times Genshin Impact with more bikinis and super soakers. Yeah, it looks um you should be in jail or something. It, it, it fucking is... sucks, by the way. Love the age Yes, it may have some sexual references, just in case you weren't clear. <laughs> in case in case you were wondering. Like, but is it good? No. The answer it is not good. I did nearly hundred percent it in one hour. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. <laughs> you should be in prison. Wow. Yeah, I I famously got dissuaded from actually playing Dark Souls much myself. Um played Demon Souls a lot. A, a close friend of mine had um had Demon Souls on the PS3 and we both went nuts for it. Like we just um we'd trade the controller back and forth. He's the one who wound up beating it. Um but like played the hell out of that. And then obviously Dark Souls dropped for the PS3 and, you know, got really good in there. Um, and then, uh, uh, I mean, it's it's been about a decade, so I should feel less shame, but uh, we got to Ornstein and Smo, and I had the controller. Smog? I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, and uh, Okay, and I got uh, the living shit beaten out of me. I got the living shit no, beaten out of me so bad. Uh, and then I died on the way back to the boss, so all the souls were just gone. And mm-hmm. uh, in my heart of hearts, I know that that's you know that's part of it, and you just sort of 
pick yourself up, dust yourself off, get back on the trail. But I didn't. I was like, I'm done now. I quit. I quit forever. <laughs> and that's valid. You are valid for doing that. <laughs> that that's that's what it totally requires okay. of you, right? Requires yeah. like a like you have to rewire your brain almost to like it, I, I, there are games that like I remember. Uh, I think the last game that I played before doing a sort of Dark Souls run to like the end, quote unquote. I think Crash the Crash Bandicoot remaster. Um, oh yeah, that's one. That I was surprised. <laughs> like I gave I gave up on that quicker <laughs> than like <laughs> just sort of got in the mode for, for 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 Dark Souls and like just was in the kind of zone of it. Then just. Yeah, stuck with it when yeah, given the pawn that bloody that remaster's really hard. Harder than but there's less of a sense of reward for it, I think. I think that's the other thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like like at least the Dark Souls and I love the Crash Bandicoot games. This is not, not not to knock them, but at least the Dark Souls game give you give you like really tripped out and intense uh lore that like the amount of love and passion that they have for things like um, for uh, Book of the New Sun, for Berserk, for like all these landmark um, fiction works, both of the East and West, and like these tremendous loving nods. It feels like, okay, you're unraveling something. Meanwhile, that fucking orange rat will just beat the <laughs> shit out of you, and then it will cut to him laughing, and it feels somehow worse. Like, yeah. there's no cool lore. It's just like, hey, you're fucking bad at my game that appears to be for children. <laughs> if that rat was in a Dark Souls game, he would have expansive lore. You would you would realize <laughs> that you are actually the the villain for her for hurting him. One of the you... hardest Crash Bandicoot levels is just cross one bridge one time. Yeah, that's where I gave up on that <laughs> like fog bridge. Yeah, but the, like, like... the hit, hit boxes for those like broken bits of wood are ridiculous. You apparently can jump on the rope, and if you walk very carefully, just walk across the entire bridge just on the rope. Uh, and that, but it's also uh, it's so thin that if you don't do it perfectly, you will instantly die. <laughs> just as hard to get right. Like that's that's the that's why it's so brutal. That the the thing that makes it easier is like no easier. <laughs> so at least with Dark Souls, it feels thematic. <laughs> like where you're like, oh, the struggle is, you know, sort of. It, it's sort of like a uh, Dark Souls, and you know, to use our fancy brain words, it's sort of like a a playable interactive version of dialectical struggle or of the. Uh, the organic motion of the rhizome or things like that, where it's not really about overcoming. It is about struggle itself. And you get all, you're like, okay, okay. So, you know, getting hurt isn't that bad. Meanwhile, uh, whenever you're about to fall into a pit, Crash Bandicoot rotates his face towards the camera and gives you a look like, see you back at the start of the level, boy. And then drops down and you're like, no! <laughs> it feels like you've been hit. <laughs> it feels like a man threw a spear over a building <laughs> and threw your window and hit you in the chest. <laughs> it's like it, death, death in that game is like an interruption. Is, <laughs> I guess in Dark Souls it's, it doesn't feel that way. You do. Well, I mean, I guess that's it. It's the talking about our big philosophy words. I think that the, all those games 
are like the perfect of playable example of what is the eternal return like just yeah. flat out it's it's the it's the best encapsulation of it anyone could ask for um, you even have a, a literalization of the eternal return um or aspects of it that get under discussed in something like bloodborne where you attempt to become uh you don't know it but you attempt to become this elder thing which sort of represents that other element of um how only an ubermensch can really achieve the eternal return in the sense of like erupting beyond the matrix of the perpetual differentiation of time into a the a repetition of time uh where you have this like this elder god form of course their take on nietzsche is like yeah you become a lovecraft cronenberg <laughs> only the moon presence can have eternal recurrence <laughs> I guess that's It'd be it, like if like, like there's, there's like this it's this long ass process of like self actualization, but then even when it's complete, you have you still go back to the beginning and start over. Mm. Like the, as soon as the peak comes, then you just immediately back in the trough. Yeah. It, I mean, one of the things I love about the first Dark Souls game, thematically, is that that process of self actualization, the constant grind to get bigger to get more souls and get stronger and defeat more bosses and get more lord souls and get to the end of the game and finish it is all bullshit you you're being manipulated the whole time you're just yeah. being turned into a bigger piece of wood to go on the fire you're not like saving the world at all you're just well, making yourself more flammable so there is one ending where you do actually save the world, but it's like you have to do a bunch of really, really counterintuitive shit. Um, Are we talking uh, Dark Souls 1 here or the whole I think I'm pretty series. sure it's Dark Souls 1 where you actually can keep one guy alive um, throughout the entire game and you do actually... Uh, uh, I think it's like the depressed Onion Knight dude who otherwise like dies if you do literally anything, like any choice whatsoever. But there's a series of counterintuitive things you can do in, of course, Dark Souls, an invisible quest line um, that eventually sees him. You still die at the end, of course, oh, but he sorry, lives. I've just got to, I've just got to run downstairs. My wife's forgotten the key. It'll be one second. Hold on. It would be funny if we just left this as a big gap and then, like, didn't, didn't have anything in. <laughs> yeah, we're being polite. It's like, why do you leave it in in the final episode? <laughs> like, oh, we just, you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, like on, on that... There's, there's an analogy to make here about... <laughs> <laughs> souls related quest um. <laughs> on, on that uh on that element of like the the perpetual repetition of it um i do like how they fold that in narratively and to be fair they're not the only um they're not the only roguelike or roguelite type game that does this and though they don't have like randomized elements i do consider them at least playing with similar uh uh thematic and gameplay elements of like a a gameplay loop rather than it being like standard linear progression um where you use death to find new information to gradually overcome something of having things like in the dark souls games your um uh i used to call them beef jerky i forget what they're called you turn into beef jerky if you die uh 
you're like the cho- you're basically like the chosen undead in in all of them. Like the whole point is Oh yeah. Um Is it the tarnished? Well, I think in Elden Ring you're the tarnished. Um, yeah, in Elden Ring you're the tarnished in in Okay, gonna know that here. Elden Ring, you're the tarnished. In Dark Souls One, you're the chosen undead. Dark Souls Three, you're the ashen one or the ashen undead. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, your your kind of point in all of them is, and even in Elden Ring, is to turn yourself into beef jerky and to in, in order to keep a flame going, just so a dynasty of long dead people can survive for another hundred years or so, and then someone else comes along and turns himself into jerky for it. Yeah, like, and one thing that I adore quite a bit is as you learn more of this lore, the question of are you fighting bad people quickly kind of goes away. Then obvious, the obvious second question, wait, am I fighting good people? Am I the bad guy? Yeah. That also kind of goes away. And eventually you're like, oh, I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of fighting people, aren't I? Yeah, this is yeah. just sort of, you're like, am I doing a good or a bad thing? And Miyazaki's like, neither. You're welcome. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, and he he, uh, I've ended into Dark Souls just two, uh, well, kind of two. You've you I think you mentioned two, the one. Yeah, with, they, uh, they have two main branches. Um, but then there's a couple other things like the Solaire um mission is the one I was talking about. Yeah, uh, but the the other one where you team up or with Calf, the evil um creature who you can also. I think of as wait he's not evil he he's the only person who's actually telling me the truth he's actually um even though he's been like presented as evil by everyone else that's because he's the only person who really understands the world and really wants to move on to his next phase um you could even see him as kind of like a revolutionary figure and he's got this like underground movement of dark wraiths that are gonna overturn the first flame and they're gonna usher in a new age of humanity uh, you could do his ending, but the fact that Dark Souls 2 happens means that if you did his ending, something else happened between those two things to make that ending uh, obsolete and make it so it just didn't have really any effect on this endless cycle of uh, feeding the flame, it's fading, someone else feeds it again, it fades, and it just gets worse and worse and worse until Dark Souls 3, where the whole thing is just a complete mess. Uh, and everyone involved has died, gone insane, or has decided to just abdicate their responsibility and just let the whole thing die. Like there's you- the classic read of the Dark Souls games um, in spaces like ours as being like embodiments of the necro politics of capitalism. Mm, absolutely. That it's yeah. like that, it, especially when trying to explain to people that what the term late capitalism means is not that it's closer to dying, but that it is further along in development. Like it's actually a tomb, a term more of doom than of hope. Like <laughs> you try to tell 19 year olds on the internet, you're like late capitalism doesn't mean it's going to collapse soon. It means it has more global control. This is the exact opposite of what you think. Like, <laughs> hmm. like we're currently yeah. in the mouth of the hell machine and everything that we've witnessed is like, how many human youths can we throw into the pits of hell in order to keep the hell machine going? Mm-hmm. And so I'm yeah. like, couldn't we just turn off the hell machine? And they go, shut up! No! No! Never! No! <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, and they've, they've... Where will the hellfire come from then? 
yeah, that's kind of the story of Dark Souls, isn't it? It's uh, yeah, just keeping the Hell Machine going and naturalizing the Hell Machine and making the whole thing natural and even heroic to sacrifice yourself to the Hell Machine. I mean, we get obviously the sort of drawback to Berserk, which is a very, very clear um, inspiration for it, to the point where famously there's the. Um, not only does uh, Guts Berserks, uh, <laughs> which is his real legal name, uh, not only does his sword show up in basically every single one of these games, um, but also there is famously uh, an epitaph to the creator of Berserk, Mira, in um, in Elden Ring. And then when asked yeah. about it, they were like, yeah, of course that was on purpose. Have you read Berserk and then played our games? Do you... <laughs> Like, do, do you think we just, whoopsie-daisy, we captured everything he was doing as a fluke. Um, but to go back to sort of that inspirational material, you have a character like Griffith who is enmeshed in the dialectical struggle of a feudal world and the intense brutality of it, and then sells out his humanity and all of his compatriots to join the God Hand, which are all, like, Lovecraft hell monsters um, including like some really fucking vicious, uh, and if you're not the right type of person, deeply triggering stuff, but all still to overthrow this incredibly like brutal and broken world. So it sort of like makes you, and he then uses it to actually build a kingdom of peace in the, hmm. to thud you on the nose. He, he comes dressed in white. So it's like, okay, he's doing the antichrist thing of like, but raises that big question that sort of sits in, sits inside of uh the souls born ring world we have to find it it's really fucked up that we have to find a way to fit elden ring's name into souls born now mm. they didn't think uh, about that we, think they didn't think about our Soulsborne. pain well that already happened <clears throat> in sakurai though we, we just call it souls born right. forever now but uh yeah it's sort of it it illuminates that same interior point of you certainly wouldn't call any of these forces good um, but the question of, are they bad because they merely do bad things? Do they gain a kind of goodness for resisting bad things? Is there, we, we get these much more toothsome problems. Um, you also get, if you want to read it that way, the kind of, uh, the kind of painful historical read of, the brutality of feudalism getting overthrown by the rise of capitalism. And then the question of, is this progress? And it's it, the kind of thing that Marx came to, which is it's progress, but only in the most unmarked sense. Like it's not progress towards something good or towards something bad. It is development. The end. Yeah. That's just what I feel like and is the, the kind of, Almost, I mean, maybe it's that time. This is the Delusian element that I think is really like kind of. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> um, it's this, I mean, it kind of comes from the Nietzsche thing, like the sort of the eternal return, but not just. I guess what I really like about that, that in, as a concept is that it's like a, it's quite distinctly Stoic. I guess yeah. that's like for Delusian Stoicism. Um, like Amor Fati becomes a peaceful thing, but it's not, or and a joyful thing, but not in the same way that like Buddhism is largely about accepting the world, not necessarily going like it's good. Yeah, well, I guess it it, it, it almost alludes. 
well, it kind of makes it sort of immoral. I guess that's not immoral, sort of amoral. Amoral, um, yeah. I guess is what feels like a lot of these games sort of feel like. You, you, you kind of thrown before really impersonal forces that are dark and definitely quite gothic, but... Um, well, but what's the gothic if not, yeah, just being at the mercy of impersonal forces? Um, there's this sense, like I guess what we were sort of saying before, that the way that the the, the sort of the thing that the the eternal return does to time, where well, it just makes me think of this, this Deleuze quote that I sort of had down in some notes, where he talks about how um, in his sort of philosophy of the event in Logic of Sense, and he talks about um, uh, a kind of unlimited becoming and what makes that I guess it's, I'm thinking of what you were just saying about progress like it's this unlimited becoming can't really think of it in terms of progress or otherwise because it eludes the present so it says in far as it in so far as it eludes the present becoming does not tolerate the separation or the distinction of before or after or of past or f- and future um you're yeah, always just kind of you're on a plane and you are you are you are becoming infinitely um yeah, to sort of break the... apart what like what imminence is for Deleuze, it's yeah. the difference of arborescent time versus rhizomatic time, where arborescent time has a clear, there's the root, there's the tip of the tree, you move linearly from one to the other, versus in rhizomatic motion, it's any direction, and the previous direction doesn't necessarily strongly indicate the next direction. Yeah, which feels this is, like um... Elden Ring, right? Like, <laughs> Totally yeah, <laughs> expansive. <clears throat> There's this bit in uh, Dark Souls One where Solaire says that uh, time has become convoluted, but it turns out that that line is actually a mistranslation of the original Japanese line, which is more better translated as "time has become stagnant," and that's kind of feels a little closer to what you guys were saying about how time works in there that it's not convoluted it's just become a mass just this undifferentiated stuff that's just everywhere well i think both kind of both terms i think make sense but one convoluted is a reference of the mo the motion of an object from the perspective of the object so you feel yourself constantly turning towards no real horizon meanwhile stagnant is the image of the path that makes if you zoom out and so you're not on the boat, you're just looking at it, and you're like, oh, it's not going anywhere. It's just sort of, mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that, that kind of stagnant <laughs> time image comes up a lot. And it's why these, um, which is why it's good this, is, this episode's come out after your um, Dying Worlds uh, thing you did with Eden. Yeah. We, I mean, we, we deliberately uh, tried to lay the groundwork there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, folks, go back and listen to that if you haven't already, because that's kind of the part one of this. But, um, it, I mean, all the, like the Dark Souls games kind of reminded me of that um, kind of mistranslation of that of uh, Gramsci, uh, the, the famous one. Um, uh, we are in an interregnum between... Oh, no, the, the old world is dying, the new world has not been born, and now is the time of monsters. That's a mistranslation, mistranslated bit. But... Um, because A, there are literal monsters in it all, all the way through, and it's always about being in a point where the old world is clearly gone. In Elden Ring, there's ruins everywhere. There's clearly been this wonderful civilization at one point, but now it's all gone to crap. And then 
there's a new world coming in any of the game's seven endings. It could be uh, the Rani's beautiful uh, Age of the Moon, or it could be the Age of Rot and Decay and Dung Eating. And, um, but we don't know where we are right now. Uh, it's which it's is where we get of... sort of the, the postmodern sense of catharsis, um, which this will anger any of my more orthodox Marxist friends, but they can, they can read more books. That's fine. Um, they'll get over it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm confident. Um, but that you get that postmodern sense of sort of existential catharsis where the yearning impressed in, in all of these games is, is for a cathartic uh, eruptive moment. So again, to sort of think back to Deleuze, you have intensities that that move in all these directions and per Deleuze, the only thing that sort of disrupts the internal convolution of this is like piercing a threshold. Now, obviously you kind of have to think spatially as a threshold being above you, but it doesn't, in reality, it's not necessarily aboveness. It's just sort of, there's some barrier that's keeping this fluid motion uh, perpetuating its same cyclical or Brownian motions inside of it. And when you pierce that with some kind of intensive thrust, you get this cathartic eruptive thing that destabilizes um, that destabilizes this rickety system that you're that you're sort of pent up in. And that's the the game presents pretty equally or the games, all of these games present pretty equally good and bad endings. Bloodborne is maybe the only one that really strives to strongly tilt you towards one specific ending. But then that one is elliptic and implies that you potentially were the final boss. Like there's nothing that strongly says the moon presence that you become is not the same moon presence that you fought given mm, the weird yeah. con contortions of time. Mm. Yeah. And even if it is, then, um, Potentially, you're just the next moon presence that you're yeah. just going to keep this whole horrible thing going. For you know, um, yeah, Bloodborne has easily the bleakest of any endings of any of them because there's really no way out. It, even eventually, Dark Souls Three got to in the final DLC of Dark Souls Three, you get to a good ending, even though it's one that takes place after the literally all of the world has turned to ash. Yeah, you do. Uh, you do get a a small child gets to paint a new world that's going to be better than the old one. Uh, but, um, yeah, Bloodborne, it's just going to keep on happening, and the Elder Gods just don't give a shit. Um, I don't even know if Elden Ring has good endings yet. We, the, the endings are so obscure. They're, they're, I mean, they're kind of, if you want to bring it back to Marxism, it's the whole... Um, uh, recipes for cookshops of the future you know we, we can't really see past that horizon it's going to be so radically different from anything that we we can't actually say what the next age is going to be it, beyond like some vague speculations and in dark souls we we know nothing of the age of dark that's going to come after the age of fire it's you know it's completely obscure there's nothing we can possibly say about it um, it kind of reminded me of something you were saying there about um, this need for like a, a like a cathartic schism from this place we all find ourselves in. The, that that whole thing that Gramsci said about feeling that you're living in a between two points. There was 
the past and there's the future and you're just stuck in the middle in this place that doesn't quite make sense it's not unique to him by any means it's in hinduism in the kali yuga it's in christianity and the point between like eden and new jerusalem um, yeah and it's messianic time in judaism it's it's everywhere fascists have the same ideas you know they, they see our current world being between a golden age in the past and return to tradition in the future yeah it's, it's one of the like fascinating especially if you do like proper academic study of this the fascinating apolitical nature of dialectical thought that it emerges as this sometimes in the foreground or sometimes as a shadow but it emerges through everything from theology to sociology to uh to political philosophy and all these kinds of things yeah and like through literally all of human history and culture this these ideas come up in native american mythology and er everywhere just it everywhere. almost the 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 magician in me the one that, that likes occult stuff reads it almost as like the psychological shadow of the experience of evolution and how that yeah. doesn't really have be it has a beginning point technically but it doesn't really have an end point or like a like a direction it just sort of it pushes equally outward in all directions and it only stops when it hits a blockage in some direction rather than hmm. and almost like, like this extinction or something yeah, it, almost like this, like latent, um, like sublimated mass memory in in like life itself of like how fucking weird that is. <laughs> like, yeah. why do I exist? I don't know. A lot of accidents and a lot of weird flukes. Be like, why? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Don't just let like Earth a, get too hot. Just a macrocosm of the like experience of being a human itself. You, you're born, you live, you die. And you're stuck in this weird middle stage where you don't quite have a real, like, there isn't a, um, see, so if you're dead, you're just dead, right? If you're yeah. not born, you're just not born. In the middle, you've got to figure out what that means, and you've got to give it its own purpose and meaning. It's not, uh, there's it's, nothing it's, intrinsic about it, just existing and being. Like the one, big one of the better criticisms one of the more um, better criticisms of like orthodox Marxist thought, and, and I'm, I'm saying this as a Marxist, so I'm not, I, duh, everyone listening to this fucking knows that. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, that one of the better criticisms of it is this fixation on things like the revolutionary vanguard or, um, or revolution with a capital R kind of falls back into images and modalities of idealism. Then instead of being like, no, the mechanics is, struggle with a lowercase s it's just this perpetual dialectical movement that instead it still seeks that same kind of idealistic cathartic escape from that machinery that like there will be a revolution and then there will be um this is where we get sort of the lack of capacity in certain marxists to be critical of previous revolutionary governments or marxist figures that you must maintain this idealized figure of like the golden gleaming revolutionary figure rather than like, no, all revolutions are faulty. All revolutionary figures are fallible and you only make them better through this autocritical process. Um, yeah, is it, to like criticize a, a revolution would be like to criticize a messiah. It's yeah. Would be that instead impossible. of they, they're beyond morality and everything. Yeah, it's like you lose this capacity to be able to say things like pretty obvious things. 
Stalin made some missteps. He also, to anyone who can read some texts, did some fairly necessary uh, strong improvements of the lives of people in the USSR, but had some missteps. Like, without even getting into what they are, they did exist, and we can discuss them like political adults trying to make the next revolution be a better, more more compassionate, more effective one. And then you run into, yeah, that that messianic thought that... um. It's funny, Nietzsche acts both as a way to figure these thoughts, but he's almost better read sometimes as like as a warning that like this mode, the mode of the image of the Ubermensch and the slave worship of the Ubermensch can arise under basically any system because it's a very human urge. Hmm. Like it's not bounded by these other systems. You'd sort of be misled to think that only capitalism produces the image of the uh the great men of history um you would be smart to say that it is a reactionary thought to believe in the great men of history and the souls game sort of hint on that like one of one of the big things that you're doing in like most recently elden ring is you're in part hunting down all these previous other great men of history that have just become like murder lunatics (laughs) yeah i mean that's, that's all you do in all of the games really every most of the bosses are these like fallen versions of or illusory versions of the great men in in their worlds and or they once were that and then they then they went mad or they compromised themselves or they turned to some dark magic and they became even more uh they lost themselves every great person especially Gwyn in the first game who's yeah. like the typical one uh seems to yeah it it's constant reminder of all the great people in history are just going to end up failing you and becoming zombies literally <laughs> um i mean with elden ring they, they do something different and interesting with that where the uh the gwyn figure which is in elden ring marica a is a lady for a start b is actually a lady and a guy she can split herself into two and one of her halves is male um and it and she, she seems to have a lot more agency and a lot more. She's more rebellious against the this uh, golden order of the world than um, Gwyn was. Uh, she's a much more interesting character. I don't want to spoil things because it gets very. Um, there's a lot of speculations, and it's the story is kind of still being written. There'll be DLC where you'll actually yeah. hopefully find out the full story because there's huge gaps, and we really don't know most of the characters' motivations, or uh, uh, we don't know a lot at the moment. I want to say one small cluster of spoilers, more because I find it really fascinating, and they don't really have directionality yet. It just offers this, like, really enigmatic, like, what? Um, Where, like, the tree itself is an alien? Yeah. And Radon holding the stars... I mean, obviously, that's literalized by the minute that he dies, a meteor comes and crashes in. So it's like, oh, he was literally. But then it's like, you. there's some hints that it's like, yeah, one of these things came to our planet and Radon was like, no, I'm stopping that. And so it's like, wait, should I have killed that man? Like, <laughs> he did murder a ton of people every year for fun, but maybe he kept aliens away. But are the aliens good? I don't know. Like, No, they're not. Very bad. They're, they're it's like that. he also locked up the Eternal Cities, which is good or bad. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of all bad. Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the, 
I mean, yeah, the the Golden Order is literally from space. It's yeah. uh, literally came from space. There's a, it, um, there are multiple types of alien. There are multiple uh, gods. Um, it, it's yeah. It it the it the also gr- it nudges the, at a thought that we have had you know, lingering in this world for a while, which is that. Um, so it came up when Bloodborne came out of like, are these games the same world, the same timeline, but maybe just like a different era? And that was strongly poo-pooed. But given the prevalence of certain repeating forms, it does sort of hint at like maybe there's a meta architecture where because in Bloodborne, it's quite literally it's a moon presence, a weird it's a weird alien thing that has some similarities to the Elden Tree. It's not super similar. And it's like not saying that they necessarily intended it that way, but like given their riffing on similar imagery, it offers the syncretic nature of the games is a lot more easy to stomach, especially yeah. with something like Elden Ring being like literal space aliens. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, d- I don't think they are literally in the same universe or multiverse or, or anything but because a, I, I mean exhibit a in that is sekiro which is set in feudal japan <laughs> a regular uh, in a, a normal actual japan <laughs> yeah well kind of there are still aliens in that <laughs> yeah, and magic centipedes and dragons and so on but um yeah it, it's still in the edo period i think um so technically it's probably not in its multiverse but it does riff on the same things again and again and again in all of these going back to demon souls which is this uh fucked up world that kind of needs to end but um is in this stuck in this um point of uh, stasis and decay and decadence um the people who control this world uh being corrupt and um their own flaws uh spilling out into the world and just destroying everything around them it's these things always come up even in in edo era japan it's um like um like matt i i saw on your on your blog you know you wrote a kind of reply to someone who said that elder ring had these like strongly anarchist um themes of you know corrupted order and um uh, leaders not being um, these kind of golden paragons of virtue, but actually being just a bunch of assholes and power-hungry idiots, so on. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to you know, see if we could pick up on that, because I think it, that's a that's an easy reading of the games, but I don't think it's sufficient, <laughs> and I don't think it's particularly interesting either. If I were on a basketball court and uh, holding a basketball and someone walked past me and said that, I'd go, Psh! And then dunk the ball. <laughs> Damn. Well, the person who said that listens to the show, so yeah, you may not want to alienate listeners that way. But uh... I feel like anyway, I, I just really struggle to <clears throat> almost lay this the any of their worlds kind of over our own. Like it just feels like mm. they they act so contrary to it. Of uh... And maybe it's a, I don't know if it's like a cultural sort of, like they just, they, I feel like it's important that they just simply like take place elsewhere um, on this kind of other realm that, I mean, I was thinking about this before when I think you're talking about the 
because I, I feel like it's significant. I mean, maybe I'm wronging this, but the character that you always play is is sort of somewhat technically dead, right? You're not mm. passed over into something. Not to say that you're sort of charging around heaven or hell, but I feel like it's kind of in there's this kind of distinct separation from the natural world or or mm. or what we yeah. recognise as anything. And I feel like that's kind of like you know the. I feel like that plays into the whole dynamic of the thing where it's not kind of about resilience. You know, like I do think there's something interesting that we can say like the, the resilience it takes to play these games, maybe, and and the reason that they've gotten popular in the kind of world that they present maybe says something about how we feel like, you know, we're kind of, like we are responding to the world around us, but kind of like I, I find it's difficult to read anything political into them almost like it is just kind of this it's almost like philosophical black box almost that's detached and um it's kind of like the uh, kind of going back to more Deleuze like this the, the this the, the the when Deleuze ends up talking about the event and 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 his use of the eternal return and this eluding of the present but you're in this kind of space of imminence but of talks about that kind of the kind of death that I think you get in in the Souls games where it's not really about kind of the repetitiousness of it completely derides any sense of birth or death. You're just sort of in this other's place. There's this moment where I think he's talking about um Joey Busquette, it's this like poet who I think he has this line that Deleuze quotes. It's like, you know, my my wound existed before me. I was born to embody it. Um, that's kind of like the world. We don't. I think every every sort of Souls game, you're, you're always kind of thrown into a situation, and you don't necessarily see it resolved. But in so doing that, it's kind of not about how we respond to the world. It's like you are just you're not a product of that world. You're kind of a product of the event that has taken place. Um, I mean, is, isn't that though, side of things? I mean, isn't that though like a very human like feeling that you're uh, totally. like what like Heidegger would call like thrownness that we all feel like we're kind of not fully here that we're not um, really part of this world that we're and that kind of Gramsci thing about being in between two places that we see everywhere else. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean. That like that I feel like when when it comes to sort of projecting some sort of politics onto it, I kind of I think I I, I like to affirm the fact that that's not really possible precisely because it, kind of affirming that thrownness, whatever you are thrown into, is kind of then irrelevant. And in that sense, not in a kind of nihilistic, to depressive sense, like you sort of you know you said before, it's not it's a terrible analogy for depression. I think actually it's 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 kind of empowering because it makes that world that you're thrown into be malleable um it doesn't matter what it reflects or what it or or what it was or what it could be that's in any sort of like teleological sense you're just there you're thrown into it and it's your oyster almost and that's even though it's it's painful and all full of suffering but you persevere anyway you make the best of you make yourself worthy of what you're thrown into um I think that's yeah, kind of like this really it's a stoic message that I, I don't know it's, it's, it's like the one reading of these games that I just like it's the one and it's the only one I feel like I can hold I just I, I love it about them yeah it reminds me a little bit of sort of so to to be serious instead of clowny one of the paucities of trying to overlay an explicitly anarchist read 
onto these games, especially via things like the corruptibility of order, is one, and this is, to be fair, this is apparent to to more learned and, and studied anarchists as well. I'm friends with plenty and have met many that have read more than enough books that we can have some very fruitful, gainful discussions. But that that critique is one that exists also within Marxist space, also within capitalist space, also within fascist space. So that that notion of the corruptibility of order and figures of order is not actually one that's um, strongly localized to anarchism. Um, in fact, that's that's where things like revolutionary thought or even like uh, fascists have their own form of revolutionary thought. That, that same in capitalism, you have disruption like all these same models still point to that same that same mode and method. Uh, likewise, there's something uh, like what you were saying uh, about about the stoic angle of them. There's something really beautifully and compellingly um, human about them, where it's so obviously if. Uh, for, uh, uh, going back to, I've most recently had some squabbles in Orthodox Marxist space, so of course I'm I'm fixated on that right now. But they have they have this big fixation on like postmodernism being a a liberal um, and counter revolutionary ph philosophy, which I don't really hold. I have more complicated feelings than that, mostly because they seem to strongly reject phenomenology as important in any way. They're like that's a distraction that keeps you blind to the mechanics of the world and it's only this materialist mechanical um historical dialectical model that is fruitful but i think that kind of ignores to to be as hurtful as possible um there's a reason why many people in the west haven't given a shit about marxist thought for a while and it's because it doesn't feel like it connects with them on any level and if you don't care about the phenomenological end if you tell someone i don't care about how you feel and experience your life they're gonna go okay i don't give a shit what you're about to tell me um so even from like an organizing perspective you can't really approach it as like cold and mechanical it, it will not connect um but these seem more fixated on that phenomenological end like like what matt was saying i think you can get fruitful um partial reads of like is the world that these things are emerging in a feudal one an aristocratic one a perhaps um fallen communist one a capitalist one like you can you can um you can produce all these different reads of what the politics of the world they're in are and what their decay means um but i think that that polymorphic state is the more important thing it's not so much the fact that you can overlay multiple virtualities of the world on top of this is more meant because it's a as a way for them to get around and more focus on that phenomenological end of like what is it to be in a doomed cyclical environment in a way that isn't just doom like if they wanted it to be a gloomy game they they could have done a lot more to make it just like fuck you don't try mm. Yeah, and they I, deliberately don't. Yeah, I, the the thing that everyone says, and what someone got dunked on for saying uh, about Elden Ring most recently, is it's uh, these games are too difficult, they're unfair, they just kill you randomly, which they very, very occasionally do, but it's always... Um, you, you learn from it. Um, yeah, the games do feel like they give a shit about your life. Like you said about... Um, 
that Orthodox Marxism might uh, not at points. The games do, they're very humanist in the way, in the gameplay mechanics. In that they're not, they don't want to coddle you in the way that the, say, Call of Duty games do, where they want to get, they want to push you through this experience and get you out the other end in as quicker and the most efficient way as possible. And they want you to, to think about things and learn from things and cooperate. And they give you all a ton of different methods to cooperate with people, to be better at the game and to get around bosses that you find difficult. And it, and yeah, I mean, if they've got a message and the message is if you if you find yourself in a cyclical broken world, uh, work together with other people and you'll be able to get out of it. I mean, it's something that as speaking as a person who went through scouring, like devouring depression and nihilism to then emerge into the world after speaking to two people that I know also dealt with that and engage with thinkers who we know did that, be it, um, uh, we have, we have, uh, Nietzsche openly struggled with that. Um, Mark Fisher openly struggled with that. Like it's an incredibly common thing. I think we once again hit the fact where a lot of people have a piss poor grasp on what nihilism is in the philosophical world and imagine it as like just a black hole that devours you. And then that's it rather than like you sort of sink down to the bottom of like a mental pool and it's the floor that you touch and then sort of one of the enemies in uh, one of the bosses in Elden Ring has an attack called Nile, incidentally. But probably not a reference to uh, Brassier's work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he famously invented the notion of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, and I think the attack like froze boiling blood at you. I'm not sure if that uh, is, is relevant, but. Um... That's what it does. That rocks. Yeah. I wish I could throw boiling blood at people. Oh, I guess I could do that. It would just take a lot more effort and be a lot more insane. I mean, it wouldn't be as insane as a um, demigod monster in a hell dimension in front of the maybe corpse of his cocooned uh, half-sibling stabbing the very ether that holds together reality and thereby piercing the god of blood herself and throwing the gods of blood's blood at you while shouting nothing 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 um over and over again i think what you would do like boiling some blood on a saucepan and throwing it at someone out the window would be pretty insane but it's not that insane <laughs> that's that's fair <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's like bursting from a uh, from an alley to just be like ah! and just throw boiling blood at someone. Yeah, it's not as insane as when uh, Lord Moog, uh, Lord of Blood, does that. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's still pretty insane. You know, it'd be pretty cool if you did it. You should do it. Um, yeah, that'd be a good. Um, it'd be an ARG for the pot uh, for the podcast. Yeah, and for Elden Ring, <laughs> get, to, get a little synergy going there. Yeah. It's um, a cross promotional uh, 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 ARG, and they're like, "What? And what does that mean? <laughs> you he, he has burns." <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, check out our podcast." <laughs> <laughs> we 
if we want to get that chapo money we need to like step up the promotion okay something so, that i i'll never get over is that all all of our negative reviews for the podcast that's right we're in dirty laundry um came from exactly two episodes um one of them was when we dared say the chapo book was okay and not great um this pissed a lot of people off and then mm -hmm. the other one was when we dared to interview Tamsin Weir about uh, Gideon the Ninth and not ask her things like, how did you come up with necromancers that are lesbians? <laughs> People yeah. were legit mad that we didn't ask her her process, even though we did talk to her about you came up with this shit because it slapped, right? And she straight up went, yeah, it's pretty obvious that I just went, that would slap, and I put it down. <laughs> People don't understand literature like we do. Yeah, it's right. just a series of things that are cool and slap. I just, I, it was extremely, uh, I just, I really love that. I really love that yeah. about any time that li clearly listeners from outside of our orbit encounter us. They're like, why do they behave in these manners? <laughs> <laughs> so in that way, throwing boiling blood <laughs> on strangers and then shouting out the RSS feed for, our, for the podcast would be in keeping with... <laughs> yeah. People need to know uh, what they're getting in for when we market to them by throwing blood at them uh, and screaming things. One person was like, it sounds like they didn't plan at all. And I'm like, yeah, we never <laughs> do, you fucking idiot. Like, <laughs> This is jazz. We don't plan. We, we, we keep it raw. This is the yeah. hardcore and free jazz. Hmm. You've got to listen to the things we aren't saying. Which is virtually nothing, because we just say whatever we want. Yeah, it's a fucking podcast. Anyway. Welcome, to, <laughs> welcome to the future, bitch. <laughs> yeah. if, you don't, if you can't get... Um, what's the fucking word about where you get... Uh, homeo, not homeosocial. The, the, the word where you love a podcaster for no reason. Oh, if you can't um... Get, uh, but, but, uh, we, we've had the Parasocial. Parasocial. We, we literally had the person who... Um, uh, kind of felt, um, promoted that word on the show. But, um, yeah, if you can't Wait, get parasocial... Wait, who was it that promoted that term? Oh, shit. I, uh, she was... A, oh, God, I forgot, totally forgot her name. Uh, she was on ages ago, uh, and we read the Korean uh, webcomics. Oh, the, wait, she she's the one who promoted that? She kind of, like, dug it out of, like, sociology and brought it to people's attention to the, to the point that people use that term. Oh yeah, she I didn't, didn't know that. Yeah, she it's like the, inventor, I guess it's a yeah, it's, sociology uh, term. Yeah, her Twitter handles hyenas and Jen. No, it wasn't her. That's uh, it wasn't Emma her. Bowers. No, that's Emma Bowers. But anyway, but I was like, who else did we talk to about Korean web comics with? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we no that uh, yeah, I can't remember her name now. But yeah, we, we've we've turned in we've turned into a manhwa obsessed podcast. <laughs> Okay, anyway. <laughs> anyway, Matt, who is uh, also here. Like, <laughs> Matt, who is also here. Um, any final thoughts about the uh, Elden Ring slash Sekiro slash Bloodborne slash Dark Souls universe and oeuvre? Um, I mean, the one thing that I pulled up was just this uh, Nietzsche quote from the Gay Science Hell yeah. I just, I don't, I mean, it's a question that he asks and I don't have an answer for it, but I'll read it. 
just asks at the end of this um, fragment on the, the heaviest weight, how well disposed would you have to be to become... Oh, sorry. How well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life to long for nothing more fervently for this ultimate eternal confirmation and seal? <clears throat> seal. Which sounds to me like... Uh, that's the feeling I get when playing these games, <laughs> and I'm and I'm and I'm kind of looking forward to getting into Elden Ring, and just it, it is brilliant the, the eternal seal of never ever finishing it. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I may it's probably my maybe my favorite game of all time. It may have replaced Bloodborne as my greatest game ever made. Um, it yeah, it is absolutely fantastic. I and I may never finish it as well. Like I haven't played it for a couple of weeks now. I, I just feel I can go back and just dip into it. It's like um, I don't know, Finnegan's Wake or something. You don't need to read it yeah, all in a week. Exactly you can, like just, that. you can just yeah pick it up. Oh look, uh, I'm come back from the pub a bit drunk. I can probably uh, dip into Finnegan's Wake for a couple of hours. Come back to it some other time. Doesn't really matter. And um, yeah, I'm I'm yeah, not like, planning like, hundred percent in it. It's like immersing into a pool rather than. And that's also, I think, a healthier way um, for people to conceive of art. I get I get yelled at about this a lot when I tell people, like, I don't think you need to read a book all the way through. Um, they get yeah. so mad. But, I'm like, uh, but trying to tell them, like, the point of a book, or the point of art, rather, isn't a scientific completionism. It isn't viewing it as, like, a task that has certain steps that must be completed. It is... Uh, an evocative internal transformative experience and having that experience is the important thing this is yeah. i want to say a, this in the oh you go on there was a um a movement in uh video game journalism around the time of the new games journalism where people get more literary and uh, yeah really think about stuff of thinking about games writing as more being more like travel writing than um just art, just plain art criticism, where you talk about you know, themes, were the characters evocative, and so on. Yeah, um, Elden Ring is especially great for that because it's it, it's a a great place to just go for a while. In the same way, I go walking in the Pennines, and it it looks a lot like Elden Ring. That's I sometimes like take pictures of... and caption them if, as if they were in Elden Ring. One of the one of the reasons why I felt comfortable being on this episode, despite not having really played a lot of these games personally, is because of one, how much lush writing there is about these games in particular. It really the people who love these games are very open to that mode of discussing them. And two, I fucking love reading it like it. It touches on that aspect of games that I like so much, which is opening up these sort of it's. The gut reason of why I bought Waifu Impact is not because, one, <laughs> porn is free. I don't need it for that. And two, it's like, I don't, it's clearly not a good game. But the idea of imagining games as kind of like vistas that you can go be inside of for a bit. And even a crap game is an interesting vista. And a point. Like, the point is, is it interesting? Do I feel like I'm getting something from this rather than like, is it? the best now Elden ring from everything i've heard does seem like it it fits that second one as well but um it definitely yeah, it, nails the first one yeah they, they, they are vistas you can just go in and you, you can't like 100 percent platinum can speed run uh the pennine 
um, <laughs> hill range. You and don't hundred percent a nat uh, like a, a natural national park. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you, and and it's just as valid to to experience that vista through like you know, W. G. Seabold writing about it as it is through going there and actually being boots on the ground there. It, it's a different thing, and you can totally just be into the law, or you can watch videos on YouTube about it. It's it it's a place. Of... It's not a, it's not a, a thing you've got to complete like a test. To tie back to our discussion of Nietzsche, uh, uh, quite a bit ago now, um, not in terms of episode count, but in terms of weeks, uh, it reminds me of a thing that I mentioned there that I um in. Uh, Matt's going to feel great pain when I say this, uh, in the Mark Fisher Facebook group that Gareth and I are still depressingly <laughs> a part of, um, which they is, love which, you that, Matt. it's, it's like seeing a dumpster fire and climbing into it on purpose every day. Okay, well, you, you said it, then. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I, it's, it's aggressively bad. Um, but I I've see there. old. Is this ontology? <laughs> I see I see <laughs> I feel yeah. great pain right now. Um oh. I I see there and uh, uh, to be fair on lots of philosophical groups on on Facebook where it reads more like if I'm being my most generous I tell myself it's people between the ages of 19 and 22 that are beginning to get a grasp of this stuff but aren't there yet. I know in my heart of hearts that's not true. Um I know they're much older and they think they're correct but um when it comes to someone like Nietzsche, something that we run into a lot is this intense, like, uh, internal angst over was he a good or was he a bad person? And the more that you sort of academically study the stuff, the more you kind of come both to a position and to a need to tell someone that's not an important question, which is weird to say, but it's, you have to think it shows that people don't think of philosophy as like a scientific rigorous process of ideas and concepts, but instead as more how we imagine like life philosophy, like, do I want to live like this person? Where when you think of like a mathematician or think of a scientist, it may be important and interesting to go, are they good or bad people? Should we be more critical of certain components there? But you don't go because Watson and Crick were at this point, we know pretty bad people, like deeply misogynistic. They had some racist um, moments and things like that. Really you don't nice. then go, now I don't care about the genome. Like that's not, you don't do that. That would be insane. Um, but likewise within philosophical space, trying to train people to think more in that manner that you absolutely do not need to co-sign the lives and practices of these people, but it doesn't mean they don't have fruitful thoughts that can't be illuminating or useful tools to build towards something else. Um, because they basically have proposed like mathematical models or transformations of forms and things like that. Um, which I, I desperately wish more people knew that it would clarify a lot of really fucking dumb arguments. And then even when people want to be critical of these people, it would really sharpen, like, no, I'm not trying to say none of their worth is work. Like, the kind of people who are like, I'm not trying to say we should throw out all of Heidegger's work, but, you know, he did like Hitler. And that's bad. And then have people go like, that is bad. I don't like that part. Like, that is not my favorite part of this man. Like. So. Yeah. Uh, 
I think our usual thing of telling people to go and buy whatever we've been talking about is kind of moot here because like, <laughs> millions and millions of people have bought Elden Ring right now. It's we'll one of be most the very first time. people. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually going to. I give it a five boxes of popcorn out of a possible six. <laughs> That's a lot of popcorn that I get. I'm giving to Elden Ring right now, but um. Yeah, I, I don't know how we could encourage people to like uh, do more with Elden Ring than what or the Souls games than what is already being done because it's like a it's like a, there's a huge community, there's million, there's tons of uh, YouTubers like uh, Farty Vidya and Zalida Witch who are making like quite good content about it. Uh, the um, don't bother searching YouTube for um, uh, like Dark Souls and philosophy, because um, it, it's bad, folks. It's bad. Yeah. Well, um, that's what you'd... If you search YouTube or Twitch for philosophy, you deserve what you get. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I I will once more say, uh, fuck BreadTube, the end. That's the whole thought. <laughs> I the CIA will uh, reduce our um, viewing numbers if we hear them talking about their important project, BreadTube. But, um... <laughs> There are literally people who believe that. I um, would be way happier if that was the case because the, it's like the classic thing. I'd love there to be conspiracies because then it wouldn't mean that people are just really dumb <laughs> by accident. Like it's, it would be soothing that it's like, oh, so they know this is dumb. Oh, thank God. But um, yeah, folks, do if you haven't played Elden Ring for some weird reason, say, for example, uh, if you uh, got really into the Horizon Zero Dawn games, uh, like, a, like a fucking idiot, like a just <laughs> drooling baby, like a... <laughs> they had robot dinosaurs in them. <laughs> okay, all right, don't care. I'm on the uh, spectrum, I love dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, and, and yeah, Dark Souls games are terrible for people on the spectrum. It's basically watching <laughs> sports at that point. <laughs> Sadly, I like sports too. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, play this game you haven't already. Is what I'm saying. Um, get stupidly into them like I am. Uh, Matt, where can people find you and your work? And what are you working on right now? And you've got a book coming, right? Yeah, um, I've had a right week of it. Um, you can find me Xenogothic uh, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I yeah, I've just. Uh, secured some PhD funding to start a project on Deleuze and Orphans and I also have just finished the first draft of my next book um, it's called Narcissus in Bloom it probably won't be coming out until like August next year which is the long, long process that is putting out a book no. but, um, it's at least so been long. written it's just like i mean yeah you know they, they talk about it with bloody final records i feel like books are like no different it's the same just long drawn out process of production it takes forever um but yeah that's at least done and it'll come out at some point so keep your eyes peeled uh, um, yeah give, uh, i know it's probably way too uh weighty to give a elevator pitch on but uh can you at least try like what's what's uh, sure. Bloom, um, yes, yeah, so my, my background before I started writing about philosophy was actually photography, and I kind of mm, decided yeah. to go back. Well, you're a damn that. good photographer, by the way. So, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, well, yeah, I guess I, I used to take a lot of self portraits, and I kind of like a lot of photographers that sort of take self portraits, but I'm also very aware that it's kind of 
the sort of most sort of denounced and moralized thing you can do. And we all take selfies and apparently we should be ashamed of it. And there's lots of books that talk about, you know, from Christopher Lash's culture of narcissism to any, you know, an infinite number of things that have been more recent, this, this sort of side of the 21st century. Um, and the book's basically a kind of response to that. Um, it kind of looks at um, other readings of narcissism that come from not just Freud, but Deleuze, Derrida, um, and goes sort of a potted history from the Renaissance to the invention of photography of how um, narcissism was not just about a kind of a, a, a deathly self-obsession, but actually, you know, it's a product of concern. And uh, it's often been used as an a way to express a desire for new selves and new worlds. Um, that's cool. the kind of argument that is unpacked over nice. some. Yeah, well, we'll have you back to talk about that one because that sounds cool. Yeah, um, wicked. Yeah, I'd love to. And um, yeah, but and follow uh, Matt on on Twitter, Zine Gothic on Twitter, and you're on Instagram as well. You can see his photography. Uh, which again, very good. And um, yeah, uh, come back next week to this show because uh, I think me and me and Langdon want to talk about a um, Grant Morrison comic, which is <laughs> like fast becoming one of my favorites. I only only got it into it a couple of weeks ago, and it's amazing. Um, in the most shocking twist of events, me and Gareth are teaming up to discuss the works of Grant Morrison. <laughs> Yeah, just completely out of our comfort zone there. <laughs> uh, and we'll also be ta uh, talking about um, a book called The Deloriad, which is really good and has a lot of Dark Soulsian themes in it, I would argue. Um, and there's a ton of stuff coming up. Uh, El Nash's new book is really good. Uh, we plan on covering the Grant Morrison debut novel that's coming oh, yeah. out. Um, yeah, that's going to be in like September, though. Yeah, so, our per... But, our per uh, our perennial discussion to talk about either Jerusalem or Ducks Newberry always sits in the back of our minds. <laughs> one day we'll do either one of those. Uh, <laughs> it requires well, finishing either one of them. Um, but, yeah, you know. <laughs> that, that's the major stumbling point is I, I don't want to be just plowing through those books. I, the sun actually, is beginning Jerusalem to dim and we finally dial in the... I, I love both of them. I've been plunking through both of them very slowly for years mm. now, but it's... Yeah, yeah like the like Finnegan's Wake souls. thing. I like yeah. kind of. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, and uh, but for now we've got a a song coming up, and which if you look at your little uh, timeline at the bottom of the thing, you can see it's going to be very long. It's a sixty-minute song by uh, Bedsore. Uh, you you picked this one, so tell me about yeah. tell me about it. So Bedsore are an Italian um an Italian death metal band made up of members that have been present in the scene for quite a while. Um, they came together for a, uh, an LP that they put out not too long ago, trying to look up the, uh, the name of it. Hypnagogic hallucinations, um, uh, mm -hmm. came out a couple of years ago. Fucking incredible. We featured a song from it when it came out. Um, I think we fit, uh, featured, um, cauliflower growth or maybe brains on the tarmac. I forget which one, but really, really incredible mixture of like goblin style, like progressive and psychedelic music with death metal um, and had a pretty firm separation of the two. Like they would ease from one into the other, but 
the psychedelic sections were these like big sprawling like uh bong smoke and wizard poster uh and lovecraft novel uh like psychedelic passages and then would go into this like really nasty um death metal they went silent for a while after they put the album out about two years ago um uh, for pandemic related reasons obviously and then recently there was a surprise release of a split lp between them and mortal incarnation which is just over 30 tracks and two songs or sorry just over 30 minutes and two tracks i'm stupid <laughs> my my big brain makes me only good at big brain words not medium mm. or normal brain words uh i know yeah, I, I think that's a pandemic thing i've been like mixing up words like crazy oh no i've been like this for years <laughs> this is this is sadly just how i am um but yeah so bed sore has this like massive 16 minute track on it called shapes from beyond the veil of stars and space which fitting title for what we've mm -hmm. been talking yep. about um death metal always is death metal is uh the best music and the perfect music for thought being and uh vibing mm -hmm. and if you don't like it you a bitch uh mm -hmm. yeah this uh they describe it on the site as like um seamlessly melds astral black metal technical death metal and 70s progressive straight out of a pl planetarium laser show um I like, which yeah that's cool. Isn't a bad way to describe it. It's like there's several minutes of this big, expansive, progressive stuff, and then lots of like really gross and powerful death metal. There's weird time signatures, normal time signatures. There's crazy, like imagistic, uh, programmatic music, and then just like tight riffs. It's fucking great. It's like literally everything that I love in music with prog and death metal, just all in one spot. I fucking love it. <laughs> I think the most uh, important question, though, is because it has uh, stuff that's old, like from the 70s, uh, is it hauntology? I think that it is hauntology, <laughs> and also um, it is a retrofuturism and uh, a lost future. Mm. And also, hauntology is when things are old. Uh, yes. I've learned that when... from uh, the Mark Fisher Facebook group. Well, it's when they're old, but I'm looking at them right now. It, yes. That, like that if I'm be... not if I'm not looking at them, it's not hauntology. But if I am that, looking at the, them, the past. So when I see like really old people, like my mm. like you know grandparents or things like that, I go, "You are hauntology to me." Hmm. Yeah, or like a sign, <laughs> or um, like a music video for Duran Duran or something. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> some some hills that have like stripes on them, so you can tell they're like around dinosaur times that's hauntology An antique shops are the most yeah. riveting hauntology exhibits as you go through and you go this spoon is hauntology and that because it's um, old that garfield shirt hauntology because it's old oh, and that's, that's all right. that hey. world that's all that word means <laughs> it has no other meaning i read exactly I read the right amount of uh, Derrida, which is the word ontology, and then I close the book. Yep. All it means is things are old. <laughs> uh, here's Bedsore.